Hope is the thing with feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers. That's like a bird. Like a bird. That perches in the soul. That perches in the soul. Welcome to the Thing with Feathers podcast, a podcast about birds and hope. I'm your host, birding enthusiast, Courtney Ellis. Welcome back to the Thing with Feathers podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Ellis. Today on the pod, we have Tiffany Kirsten with us. She is a professional birding guide with Nature Ninja Tours, and she's a speaker based in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. She loves connecting people with birds. She has broken a big year record for the lower 48 states, and she's passionate about keeping women birders safe out on the trail. More about that in a moment. Thank you for being here, Tiffany. Super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to talk birds of South Texas because you get some of the best birds in the country, if not the world. So we'll get there. But first, I want to hear, how did your birding begin? How did you get started? How did birding grab hold of you? So I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, near Green Bay, and um, my mom and I took an intro birding class at a local nature center, Mosquito Hill Nature Center, and uh, it was like six or eight weeks, uh, like a Wednesday night. It was a weeknight, I remember, because we were supposed to go after one time to go see woodcocks, and I had to go home and go to bed instead. I was very disappointed. Uh, But one of the filters, we saw a field of like 2,000 sandhill cranes um, all courting and displaying in the springtime. And so so that was really my spark bird. I love it. What a great spark bird. It's like a dinosaur. You can't miss it. (laughs) That's awesome. And it's such – I grew up in in northern Wisconsin. It's such a Wisconsin thing to name places, things like Mosquito Hill. Like who wants to go to Mosquito Hill? (laughs) Come on. Sunset Hill, Aspen Hill. No, we call it Mosquito Hill. That's that's just spot on. Um, how did you begin guiding? Um, well, so I I was so I took that birding class, and actually, my mom didn't bird after that. I had I had a field guide um, that I'd gotten as part of the class, and so I spent the following summer just studying the field guide like crazy. But really, it was just a pretty casual backyard birder until college. So I kind of refound it in college and took field ornithology. We were looking through a scope at shorebirds and the TA of my ornithology class was like, okay, we're going to talk about field marks. Don't try to identify the bird, but just like, let's talk about what you're looking at. And I looked through the scope and I looked at him and I said, that looks like a dowager with no comprehension of like why I knew that. Um, But it was from studying the field guide a decade earlier. Um, So I really got into it back in college. I went to Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin. And, um, yeah, I just uh, started doing volunteer waterfall surveys for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I ended up working in a position with the U.S. Forest Service up there at the Northern Great Lakes Visitor Center. Um, and then uh, you just kind of went just headfirst um, into that, looking for internships. Right after I graduated, I landed a position with the Cape May Bird Observatory in New Jersey. Um, and I, I went there. I, I thought I knew birds. Um, and I very quickly learned that I knew very little about birds. <laughs> They, they told you what was what, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just basically, you know, I, I, um, I taught people how to identify raptors there. And I was an interpretive naturalist. So I was on the Hawk Watch platform 40 hours a week, mm. just talking with people, teaching them uh, bird identification and, and the importance of monitoring birds and especially raptors. 
And, and then my second season there, I got to leading, um, you know, leading two hour, three hour bird walk. So, uh, it was little by little, I've been leading bird walks actually since, uh, 2006. Mm. Where'd the name nature ninja come from? Cause it's fabulous. So before COVID, um, I was training for the show American Ninja Warrior and I was, um, you know, getting ready to submit my video and apply for the show. You submit a three minute video of yourself doing cool things. And I had submitted my video. And meanwhile, I was posting just little clips of me doing fun things on social media. And my friends were like, oh, you're the nature ninja. Because if you've seen the show, you know, everyone has their kind of little tagline. Um, there's a lawyer. He's the law ninja. I was, I was managing a nature center at the time. Um, and so naturally, I was the nature ninja. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. What makes a good birding guide? I think that, um, well, obviously you need to know the birds, um, but I think that being able to connect people with the birds is the most important part. Um, I Most of my career was in environmental education. Um, I was an environmental educator basically up until I started managing a nature center here in South Texas. And um, that that connection, that, that human uh, the human connection to animals and to what you're looking at is really important um, in the interpretive. So interpretive um, in this aspect not doesn't mean necessarily interpreting a different language, but interpreting um, sciences basically to lay people who maybe don't have the, the technological or sorry, the, the scientific um, knowledge. Uh, so for instance, you know, going on a walk and seeing a hawk and saying, okay, you, you know, what, what do you eat with? Well, utensils, you eat with a fork and knife, right? Well, that hawk has a built-in fork and knife. It eat with it, eat, eats with its beak and its talons. You know, that's its fork and knife. So, um, you know, I love, I love birds, but I think I love connecting people with birds even more. Mm, and, and it sounds like so much of being a good guide is helping people to see, right? Like that was such a beautiful, you use utensils, what does the bird use? And suddenly, you know, you're not telling, you're, you're leading people into this way of seeing. Right. And hopefully solidifying something that they can remember and take home with them versus like, oh, you know, what was the name of that hawk? That, that hawk was named after person. Oh, it was a Harris's hawk. But what is a bird name? You know, a bird name, if you don't already have like an intimate relationship with birds, especially as a beginning birder, its name is so secondary to so many other things. Thousand percent. So how do you make it sticky? How do you make it memorable? Exactly. That's that's fascinating. That Yeah. I, I have young kids and I do some work with kids and it's amazing to see how they learn and it's not rote repetition usually and it's not here let me give you this factoid and i think we never lose that really like adults can learn the same way it's those little memorable sticky sticky things um we'll share with us a little bit about um and we're going to do a little a little content warning here because um tiffany has had not always the easiest story and her passion for women's safety in the field of birding began a few years back. Will you tell us some of that story? Yeah. So let me think about how far back to go. Um, well, so I, I have, I have so many interests. Um, I actually, uh, I started as a field technician with Swarovski Optic in, uh, 2015, two years after I moved to Texas. So I moved to Texas in 2013 and 
was down here for a couple of years, actively birding in all of my spare time, became a field tech with Swarovski in 2015, um, and then basically stopped birding for like five years uh, while I had their fancy equipment. I kept waiting for them to ask for it back someday because I wasn't really uh, you know, promoting the product like they had hoped. So, um, I have, I, I have so many passions always, um, you know, and I, so I found Latin dancing. I was dancing on a semi-professional Latin dance team for a couple of years. Um, I was practicing acro yoga, acrobatic yoga, um, aerial dance, all these different things. And I, it wasn't like a stop liking one hobby. Um, I would just kind of find the next one and, and it just one, you know, I just, and I got my nature fix kind of during the workday. So I found my way to competitive archery. I was actually working on starting an archery program for the nature center that I used to manage. And I found that I really loved it myself. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so really got into that. I bought uh, technically as a hunting bow, but I've never hunted with it. Um, and I started competing. And, uh, and I was training under a coach. And within just a few months of training, I, I started beating some of the men that had been shooting for years with the precision target bows, fancier equipment than I did. How dare you? I know. How dare you? And my, so my bow is purple and my arrows are pink. And it was just <laughs> the knife a little more that I had like girly colored equipment. <laughs> um, so I trained for a few months and I started becoming friends with my archery coach. And uh, one weekend he invited me to a private ranch that he leads hunts at um, here in South Texas to have a campfire and some drinks and just hang out and um, and shoot shoot archery the next day there on site. And I went once, um, and it was great. It was fine. And then he invited me again a couple of weeks later, and I went the second time. And the second time, he drugged me, and he assaulted me. So needless to say, I left the archery community very quickly. Um, and uh, and that's when I found American Ninja Warrior um, and training there. And that really helped me kind of um, cope. By no means was it any replacement for therapy. But um, it gave me kind of something positive to focus on in my life and something to really be. I just get laser, really laser focused on things. Um, and so mm -hmm. quite frankly, um, training at that gym might have saved my life. Um, and that's, that's why uh, you see that Nature Ninja uh, in my company name, because that is a really special part of my life. I don't do that anymore. I'm 36. I was old for it when I was training at the time. Um, it's, it's very upper body heavy and really hard on your joints. Um, but, but that was a really important part. And, uh, and so, yeah, so then uh, COVID shut all of that down, all the American Ninja Warrior stuff. And, um, and then I, I ended up buying a house. I, in hindsight, I was like, did I just get bored uh, and buy a house here in South Texas? Because I don't have any family here. It's just me and my dog. And, um, you know, all of my hobbies shut down. And, uh, and so then shortly after that, I lost my job. Um, the Nature Center... Uh, got rid of me. They actually, they actually fired me, um, transparently. And then after the, after I left, they got rid of all the rest of the staff. Um, and now unfortunately that nature center is run as basically a city park, but I was jobless, um, and a new homeowner in the middle of a global pandemic. And it was, it felt like a really, really awful situation to be in. And so I started bird guiding, um, in the meantime, in order to just pay my mortgage and try to make it through. And so that was, it was late, uh, late November of 2020 that I lost my job. And so immediately, like the beginning of December, I started guiding and there were lots of people that were traveling carefully by car, you know, none of the big group tours were going with the guiding companies. So 
I have more work than I knew what to do with. And so I guided for December and then I was guiding again in January. I'd actually taken a, taken a week long road trip with a friend to Florida in January um, and uh, did that road trip and then came back and was guiding more. And the second week in January, I guided Charlie Bostwick, who was doing an American Birding Association big year. So all 50 states um, and Canada usually, but Canada was basically out of play um, because of because of COVID. You couldn't get in. So I guided him for like three or four days and took him around. We got him all the South Texas specialties. There's about 30 species of birds that can only be seen here and nowhere else in the rest of the country. And then we had some rare birds hanging around too. So we got the valley specialties. We got the rare birds. You know, three or four days of just walking around in the woods with someone you get to, you know, talking and sharing a little bit about yourself. And I shared with him where I was at in my life. And he was like, well, why don't you just also do a big year? And I was like, uh, because I have a house and a dog and basically no savings. And you know, I was like a couple of years ago, I was 34. And I was like, no, I need to like, I need to be getting my life together right now. Not running around the country, chasing birds. Uh, so I, <laughs> Yeah, so that's kind of how the first idea, I guess, started. And then uh, I guided for a few more weeks, uh, having just completely written it off. And then I, I took a solo trip to, I was headed to Arizona um, to go see five life birds or bird species I'd never seen before. It's like, I just was feeling very stressed. I was applying for jobs all over the country. And um, it's like, I'll just go and spend a week. I used to drive a Chevy Spark. A Chevy Spark is what I drove for my entire big year. Um and, uh, and yeah, I was, I was in West Texas. I was leaving the second day at this point, friends of mine were reaching out to me, asking me if I was doing a big year because they were paying attention to the leaderboard on eBird. So eBird is a citizen science database where you can submit your bird sightings. You can see other people's bird sightings. You can go chase their bird sight, go see their birds too. Um, and, but it also has, and it's been great for, for research and people can track, migration patterns and climate change and things like that but it also has a leaderboard um and so you can see the top e-birders for a number of species in your county in your state or like in the united states and so i must have been i don't know if i was number one or up near the top but everyone was reaching out like are you doing this are you doing a big year they saw i was traveling and um and so i flushed some scaled quail on february 10th as i was leaving west texas leaving franklin mountain state park and it's something in me just kind of snapped and i was like this is it for now. I got on my social media right then and there. And I said, I don't know what life has in store for me, but until life demands, otherwise I'm going to, I'm going to do a big year. I'm going to go to Arizona today. And instead of just trying to see those five species, I'm going to see how many species I can see over the next week. What a journey. Yeah. There's lemons and there's lemonade and there's a pandemic and you can't go to Canada. And so let's just get in the, you should really be in commercials for the Chevy spark <laughs> that got you through the, <laughs> through the big year. I love it. So you, you, and you ended up, spoiler alert, you ended up breaking the record for the lower 48 states. Okay. Um, tell us some of the highs and lows of the big year in a Chevy Spark in a pandemic. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The in a Chevy Spark is like, is very relevant because that's a great, it's, it's a very, it's a very fuel efficient car, you know, but it's very low clearance and it, it gets 300 miles max of the tank and mine would get like even less than that. Um, so I'd have to stop every 200 miles or less um, when I was driving, uh, you know, especially vast expanses like West Texas and uh, different places where gas stations are kind of few and far between. Um, 
I slept in the back of my Chevy's bark a couple times. Um, once actually, because I was planning to disperse camp. Um, it was actually a few days after I decided to do my big year when I was in Arizona and I was planning my, my, my first, I was in, I was near Madera Canyon in Southeast Arizona for those listening who know where that's at. Um, and I was hoping to be able to find a campsite at Madera Canyon campground, but it's first come first serve and, and it's a high use campground. I was very much expecting there not to be space and I was correct. So a friend of mine had given me some coordinates for some dispersed camping down kind of in the valley and we just drive off these kind of pretty barren roads and park your car and you can pitch your tent. There's no amenities, but it also doesn't cost anything. So I was like, well, I'll just do that. But earlier that same morning, I was hiking um, in Florida Canyon and um, I started getting some text messages from friends of mine who were reaching out. I was fairly public about um, sharing my own assault story once I filed. It took me about two months to come to terms with it enough to, to want to file my case um, and, uh, you know, I shared publicly in hopes of helping other people who might be in similar situations, encouraging them to, to share their stories and file their cases. And, uh, so this was friends of mine reaching out to me this morning to check on me to see if I was okay. And to see if I heard the news of another woman who was assaulted by her new boyfriend while they were out bird watching together. And so as a survivor myself, I was like, oof, I was literally physically at that very moment in a very remote place by myself. And my first thought was, am I being brave or am I being stupid? And I think that's a, a question that we as women have to ask ourselves lots of times about so many different things, not just about hiking in remote areas, you know, and traveling solo, but, but so many times in life, you know, if it's walking um, down a certain street at night or, you know, so many things. Am I being brave or am I being stupid? So I had, I was right. Like I said, I was planning on camping at the dispersed campsite. And then I ended up just so freaked out that, and the camp campground was full. So I ended up parking my Chevy spark in the parking area of the restrooms to the campground and sleeping in the back seat of my Chevy spark, which was infinitely uncomfortable. Um, it just felt like the only place that I could feel safe uh, sleeping that night. And I needed to be in the area after dark so that I could get whiskered screech owl for the year, which I did get. So there's a happy ending. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Silver lining to it at least. <laughs> I mean, you, you, the way you describe what it's like to ask yourself that question. I mean, I think as a woman, as a birder, I ask myself that question all the time. And sometimes it's a coyote, but sometimes it's, you know, someone's walking up the trail and we don't want to live our lives in fear, but how then do we make wise decisions? And what does that look like? And I so appreciate that as part of your story, even as you're going through this yourself, you started looking around and seeing other women going through the same thing. And it, it, it caused you to kind of start to advocate in a certain way and to, to offer something to some of these women you met. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I was on, right. I was on that trip. It was supposed to be a one week trip to Arizona. It ended up being about three and a half weeks. <laughs> um, I also went to California, went all the way up to San Francisco, back down to San Diego. I ended up flying actually to um, Northern Minnesota most big year birders who do a big year of a U.S. type of scale, lower 48 or, or all 50 states, um, start in New England. 
to try to get some of the wintering alces and, and boreal birds that are there. But that ship had pretty much sailed for me. It was, you know, mid mid February now, approaching late February. So I flew um, and actually met Charlie um, up in northern Minnesota, and we spent a few days with Alex Sundval, who's a guide up there, and uh, going around and, and picking up at least some of the boreal stuff. And um, so then I did that and then flew back to California and then drove back by way of Albuquerque, New Mexico, back to South Texas um, to get the three species of rosy finches that come to the feeders at Sandia Crest outside of Albuquerque. Uh, I had a, I had a scary incident there where I was the only one at the top of this mountain. There's, there's, it's about 12,000 feet. It's about 45 minutes outside of Albuquerque. It's pretty remote. Um, there's usually a lodge that's open at the top, but the, because of COVID, the lodge was closed. And so literally there's just the feeders and a short little overlook trail at the top of Sandia Crest. Uh, and I was up there, um, waiting for the rosy finches and a white pickup truck came up and, and two men got out. I'll try to, this is kind of a long story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, but two men got out and loitered by their truck a little bit. They were not dressed for the weather. They were in very, very light jackets with, with baggy jeans and tennis shoes um, loitered by the truck across the parking lot for me, did not even acknowledge my existence. You know, I didn't want them to come over to me, but not even like a head wave, you know, a head nod or like a little wave or something. Um, they wandered down the trail, uh, out of view. They wandered back to the trailhead in view. One of them smoked a cigarette. At this point I was having like a full blown panic attack. Basically I pretty much couldn't breathe and it's, you know, 12,000 feet doesn't help either. Um, but, um, you know, that, so that, and they ended up driving away, nothing, nothing ended up happening, but that made me really realize how vulnerable I was and how many incidences that I thought would probably happen to me throughout my big year, uh, like this. So, you know, right around that same time, I don't remember if it was like a, a day or two before or a day or two after this advertisement for personal safety alarms showed up in my social media and the company is called She's Birdie. Um, B I R D I E. And I was like, what? This is, this is wild. Like this, it was just completely serendipitous that this was happening to me. You know, right around the same time I had this really scary incident, right? When I was trying to decide like what happens next in my big year. Okay. This is my first trip. Is this really sustainable for me to be able to do? Um, and so I started brainstorming with a few friends and I came up with an idea to, uh, right, launch a blog about my big year so people could kind of follow along and, launch a fundraiser. So I launched a GoFundMe, um, reaching out to the company. So I reached out to the company and, um, my friend Charlie actually had offered to donate the funds for the first hundred alarms. The idea was that I would give away alarms to women birders that I met on the trail throughout the course of my big year. Um, so the company was able to offer them to me for 50% off knowing that I would be giving them away. So my fundraiser was for every $50 donated, 35 would go towards my travels and 15 would go to purchase a half price alarm that I would then give to even more birders that I met. By the time I got home, the first hundred alarms were already on my doorstep and I launched my blog and my fundraiser on uh, March 8th, which was International Women's Day. Hmm. And, um, you know, with a goal of seeing 700 species in the lower 48 states, which something like a dozen people had done before me. Um, so not record breaking, but an admirable goal. And one I wasn't quite honestly, wasn't sure if I was going to be able to reach it. And, um, so I got started giving out the alarms literally the next day. Um, the, the first couple alarms I gave out, I, uh, I was kind of like, you know, I had the alarm in my hand and I gave it to them and I was like, hi, I'm a sexual assault survivor. And like, it was like, I was like, okay, clearly like this isn't going to work. Cause I was just met with a lot of shock 
Um, and people were like, what, what is this person trying to tell me? Um, so then I also quickly made cards. I had business cards made that described my project. And, um, you know, I was like, you know, I'm working on this women's safety project and, um, you know, had lots of really, really great conversations with women about, uh, their level of safety or lack of safety that they feel in the outdoors, um, was varying. Um, and you know, just really just stories they would share with me. I ran into one woman that was carrying a, um, she was in bear country at the time. She was carrying a uh, bear spray, um, a knife and a gun. And then I had given her an alarm. So she was fully covered um, now. And, and I, I tell this story a lot in the presentations that I give across the country. And it's usually met with laughter by the audience. And it's kind of meant, to, it's meant to be a joke, but it's also humor um, that like, this is at the actual reality of our situation is that some women need this amount of protection in order to feel safe. Mm. Yeah, everybody comes to it with a story. And you've been so courageous in, in sharing yours and, and taking on this project. And, and part of it, I think, is just educating the birding community in general that tends to skew a little bit more male than female, that this, you know, this is an issue, this is a problem, and this is something that we can we can help each other out with. I, I was reading something on social media a couple of days ago that an older woman posted, you know, if you're a younger woman and some skeezy guy is won't leave you alone, you can come up to any older woman in the world and say, hey, mom, this guy won't leave me alone and we've got your back. And I was like, what a beautiful thing, you know, that we can be that for each other and that, you know, the vast majority of men are out there because they want to see birds, not because they're, they're being skeezy, um, but that they can be our partners in this and that they can stand alongside us knowing that this is the problem that it is. And they can do specific certain things to help us feel safe um, or to just stand next to us, right? When the guy's being skeezy, suddenly that makes the skeezy guy go away. It's like magic. So Outdoor Magazine, uh, Outdoor, Outdoor Magazine did a study in 2017 and they surveyed a bunch of women about their fears in the outdoors. And they found that number one was other humans, more specifically men. Um, and then a distant, distant second was bears. Um, and so, you know, that, I think that tells us a lot about our culture and, uh, and the dangers that women, women do face is mostly, uh, human centric. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to, to other survivors out there who maybe are feeling like, I don't even know if I can hit the trail. Like I, the fear is holding me back. What was it that helped get you back out into the world besides carrying this wonderful alarm, which we'll link to them in the show notes because they're great. I, I have a little pepper spray I keep on my keychain mostly because I encounter my share of coyotes out here in Southern California, but um, I'm looking into these alarms because it seems like that's it's it's small, it's light, it's portable and one extra, one extra thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. The great thing about the alarms also is that you can carry them on an airplane. So I'll get a lot of women clients that come down and they'll say, well, you know, the first thing I did after I left the airport was go pick up pepper spray because they didn't check the bag. Um, I don't even know if you can have it in checked luggage. Probably not, actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, you know, and then they're going to have to leave it behind at the end of their trip, too. So it's great for that reason. And it's um, it's reusable in terms of advice for other women. Um, you know, this is, this is a hard one because it's all, it's so personal to all of us and, and our, our comfort levels and our boundaries. Lots of people reach out asking for, you know, like, Oh, well, what was, what was kind of like the formula that you used? You traveled most of your year, probably 
two thirds to three quarters of my year, I would say I traveled solo. Near the end, I ended up kind of teaming up with a lot of, of birders and especially reaching out to women birders, actually, who I had not met, who I met on social media um, and then met in person to go chase some of the, the rare birds at the end. But um, there was no formula. I never, I never followed a formula. There were situations where, you know, I would maybe camp at this really remote, isolated campground um, in one place and, uh, it just, it just felt okay to my nervous system. Um, and then, you know, a different situation, maybe different state, but, but similar situation. Um, you know, I would be like, this just doesn't feel right. We need to, we need to listen to our nervous systems. Um, and for those who have been through a lot of trauma, sometimes, sometimes our nervous systems aren't quite, um, sometimes we don't have those, those warning signs, um, that a, a nervous system that didn't go through trauma would have. Um, so that's something to keep in mind too. But, you know, it's, again, it's that, am I being brave or am I being stupid? And, you know, do I sit at home and lock myself in my house and probably nothing will happen to me? Or do I go out and, you know, explore the world and, and, and the possibility exists that something bad would happen. You know, I was very aware of that throughout the course of my whole big year. For, thankfully, nothing really, nothing, you know, there, there wasn't really any added trauma um, to my life through my big year, there were some difficult situations and some scary situations and some car trouble and, th and things like that. Um, but it all worked itself out. But, um, you know, we, we as women are repeatedly missing out on solo experiences that have the ability to make us feel fully alive mm. for a myriad of reasons. Mm. You wrote about your big year. You have this wonderful article in, in Texas, Texas Monthly. I'll link to it in the show notes. Beautiful pictures. It's this like glamour shot of you with a crested caracara. That was like, oh, that's amazing. Um, but you wrote that uh, the big year was life-changing, a life-changing and transformative experience, but I'll never, ever do it again. <laughs> Tell us why. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you why for, for, for both of those things, actually. So life, life changing and transformative actually. So, um, that the Albuquerque incident and, you know, early on real thinking that I was going to go through all of these really, really tough situations. I, I assumed that by the end of my big year, and I, I literally thought like, if I survive my big year, like literally if I live through it, um, mm. you know, I'll be tough. I'll be so tough. I'll be able to handle anything that anyone throws my way. You know, I'll just, you know, I'll just have all these skills to handle all these really difficult situations. But the take home message that I got from my big year actually was learning how many good people are out in the world. Uh, there was a, an incident in um, California. I was actually headed up to the Redwoods in Northern California, a really remote area where my phone charger stopped working uh, in the middle of my drive. And I wasn't going to have, um, I wasn't going to have anywhere to, you know, get another phone charger and I was looking on my phone and there was a gas station halfway Well, the gas station was literally only gas. It didn't have any, any, um, convenience store attached to it, whatever. And, uh, I drove for like another hour. It was, it was absolutely in the middle. And it was a three hour drive down this two lane road. <laughs> um, and there was a, there was construction on the road and there was a woman flagger stopping traffic on my side and I was the first person that happened to be stopped and uh, my windows were down. It was super, super nice out. And I, while we were stopped and waiting, I was zooming in onto my phone and uh, trying to figure out where I might be able to go near my route of where I was going to get a, a new phone charger. 
And she walked over to me and, and just completely in shock. And she was like, do you have reception here? I don't know how many days she'd been working out in the middle of nowhere, but she was like, any cell service here is crazy. I said, no, I don't. But you know, this is my situation. Do you have any idea where I might be able to go to, to sort this out? And she said, hold on. And she walked over to her truck and I knew exactly what she was doing. Um, she had asked if it was an iPhone and, uh, she came back to the window of my car with her charger. She gave me her cell phone charger and I had $20 ready to hand her, you know, super thankful that I wouldn't have to go out of my way. Um, and she wouldn't take the money. She said, I just want you to be safe. Mm -hmm. And that was, yeah, that was just like an awesome woman to woman moment. Um, and I said, well, thank you, but like, you're still going to have to buy yourself a new charger. I gave, tried to give her the money again and she wouldn't take it. And then I remembered the alarms and by and large, I gave the alarms to women birders and a handful of women hikers that I found in really remote areas. But there were a few instances during my big year where it was perfectly appropriate. So I, I gave her an alarm and the card describing my project. And then I didn't even get her first name. It was time for traffic to go on my side. So that was the end of our conversation. But that's just one example of so many times. It was 10 to 1 or 20 to 1 good people looking out for me versus those scary incidences like in Albuquerque. Um, and so, you know, where I thought my big year was going to harden me, it um, it strengthened me, but it softened my heart. Mm. What a beautiful thing. And we want the construction workers safe too. <laughs> what a beautiful gift you you each were able to give to one another. And the unexpectedness of it, I think, is one of the things that gets many of us into birding. You go out looking for something and you might see that thing, but you might see something completely different and every bird feels like a gift. And it sounds like many of your interactions with fellow women you met on the trail or on the road or at the construction site had that similar feeling of this unexpected grace uh, out of nowhere, you know? Absolutely. So given all that beauty and goodness, why are you never doing it again? <laughs> uh, it's exhausting. Um, and it's frankly, I, there's a lot of birders that, there's a lot of birders that it's like their life goal is to be in a situation and have the resources and have the time to be able to do a big year. And that was never me. It was never something that I wanted to do. Um, I dated someone way back in 2011 who was doing a state big year um, and broke the record. And so I was along for the ride for about half of that big year. And it, it just, it, it seemed, I don't know. It just, it just was never something. <laughs> it just transparently was just something that I never really had the desire to do, which, you know, and, um, and it just kind of, it just kind of happened to me and I'm, you know, very grateful that I had the opportunity to do it. Um, and the time and the, and the barely the resources we can, we can get into finances a little bit later. If you want, uh, I finished my year in credit card debt. It was kind of scary, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it just, I, November and December were quite frankly, uh, terrible. <laughs> I mostly hated my life, uh, at that moment. There, um, you know, it, it's kind of seen as like a sexy thing to to just be able to fly all over the country and chase individual birds. In the beginning, it's okay. It's this, you know, two week road trip here or whatever, and it's kind of you're collecting a lot of new year birds, and you're but you're being able to kind of take your time and enjoy your life a little bit, camp under the stars for a couple of nights, and then near the end of the year, it's like, oh, okay, you know, this rare bird showed up on the other side of the country. Oh, I need to go get on a plane right now, you know, and get there and deal with the stress of like two flights, usually at least for me coming from South Texas. Um, it took pretty much two airplanes to get anywhere. 
And uh, the stress of like, is the bird going to be there when I get there at the end? And then you're just spending all of your time sitting in airports and in airplanes and waiting for rental cars and driving rental cars. And I estimate the last two months of the year, each bird that I went to go see, I maybe saw for like 15 minutes and then had to turn around and either backtrack or move forward, go into the next one. So it, it just, yeah, it, I was so tired. I was so ready to be done <laughs> by the end of the year. It was an amazing experience, but yeah, it's never again. Is there like is there like the taxi meter running in the back of your mind too of like oh that was a three hundred dollar bird awesome that was a, and it was just a gray bird that was a five hundred dollar sparrow fantastic yeah. yeah I actually kept a spreadsheet um, the spreadsheet that I had um, for all of my target birds and it's you know it's a lot of logistics and planning location A location B location C of where you're going to try to get these new year birds. That kind of morphed as I got the birds. It morphed also into a spreadsheet of tracking all of my expenses. And uh, it broken up even into cost per bird or cost per trip per bird. And so, you know, I had a bird that showed up here in South Texas, 10 miles away from where I was, a fork-tailed flycatcher. Uh, I estimate that bird cost me $1.50. Um, I, I made a huge judgment error in April when I was still like just doing a very, very low-key year, right? It was like absolutely no intention to break the record. I had no idea until like September maybe October, uh, probably October sometime was when I really realized like, Oh, I could, this is possible. Once I got to 700, um, which was October 3rd with blue footed booby, uh, I just kind of re reassessed and there were some birds, individual species, different places that I was like, well, I don't need this and I don't need this and I don't need this. I can get to 700 without these species. I factored them back in. I was like, Oh, maybe I can do this. But so long before that, um, in April of, um, Western Smidalis showed up in Florida and I had never seen one before. And uh, Charlie, you know, Charlie went to go see it. And my friends, the McQuaids, who are Florida birders, who do a big year basically every year, uh, went to go see it. And like all these friends of mine went to go see it. And I was just like, I'm doing a big year. I have to go see this bird. I made the like split second decision to buy a next day plane ticket, um, you know, down and then back 24 hours later, round trip. And uh, I, I got down there. I rented a car. It was $212 to rent a Chevy Spark for 24 hours. It was spring break. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I got a hotel room. I don't know why I got a hotel because I slept for like five hours and then I had to move on to the bird. But uh, I, I went down there, saw the bird, got back to the airport. And I was like, what did I just do? <laughs> what did I do? Um, and I'm sitting in the airport and this bird cost me more than $900. I'm unemployed. I don't know where my next paycheck is coming from. I'm a homeowner, you know, I have a mortgage payment. And uh, I was like, so I, I bought a $12 canned Mai Tai drink at the, at the <laughs> airport. As you do. What else are you going to do? Celebrate the tropical bird with a tropical drink because I already spent $900 and what's 12 more? That's that's amazing. I I have spoken to one more big year record breaker, David Johnston from West Virginia on the pod, and he did a big year. And then the next year, he just looked for birds five miles from his house. He's like, I just, you know, this year we're like not doing the, he had a great time. And also he's, he's on your train of never again, great time, never again. Yeah. And his big year was just West Virginia, but even that, right. was like, Ooh, okay. Okay. I respect both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely swung the other way too. So, yeah, so I, I was on 77 airplanes during my big year. Um, and I estimate I, I drove about 49,000 miles uh, by, by car in addition to that. 
And um, I've definitely- It's good you didn't have a job. You wouldn't have had a job at the end of this year if you'd had a job. (laughs) Well, actually, and that's how I decided to start my company was in the fall when my big year started going really well. It was like, uh, it was like August probably still actually- I was like, well, if I get, and, and I was applying for jobs all over the country this whole time. Um, you know, nature center managers typically stay in their positions until retirement is not a lot of turnover. And so I figured I couldn't really probably do what I had been doing and still live in the house that I'm still in now in South Texas. And um, so I was applying for jobs everywhere and feeling very stressed, getting lots of interviews, but no job offers all the way, all the way through, all the way from November of 2020 up until like, the beginning of August of 2021. And at that point I was like, okay, well, you know, I, my big year is going really well. I don't want to really have to like throw away the work that I've done on it by getting a regular job would mean I'd have to just travel on weekends and whatnot. And I was like, okay, well, yeah, I don't know if it's going to be a for now thing or a forever thing. And I don't know if it's going to work, but starting January 1st, or January 2nd, whenever I get home, um, I'm going to start my, my own bird guiding company. And, uh, so, so that uh, basically was kind of my free pass that just continued traveling around the country, um, for the rest of the year, chasing birds. I finished the year with like $8,000 in credit card debt. (laughs) I ran out of money right around the time I hit 700. And then, so from there on, it felt uh, 700 species for the year. Um, and so from there on, it definitely felt a whole, like a whole nother level of risky going into credit card debt to chase birds. Yeah, I the the expense piece of birding is something that I think we need to talk more about because it's it's there. You know, you can't go to all the festivals, you can't do the big year unless you know you either take that dive into credit card debt or you're just independently wealthy. Which you know, I guess a few birders are. I'm not one of them, um, but I think that yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to to ponder and talk about. And congrats though on your big year, and congrats on still being in the house. Those are two victories right there. Tell us a little bit about the birds of South Texas, especially the birds you see in the fall. Because I know there's a giant spring migration that comes north. What do you guys see going southward in the fall? Yeah, so actually most of those species that I mentioned that are South Texas specialties are here year round. Mm. Um, It's it's a subtropical habitat. And so the conditions are right, um, you know, for them to breed here and winter here. They're, They're not migratory. And um, so Altamira Orioles and Green Jays and Plain Chachalacas, Great Kiskadees, um, Clay-Colored Thrushes. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really great. Um, we have Tamalip and Thorn Scrub habitat here, which mm. is a globally imperiled habitat. It's only found in the Rio Grande Valley and very northern Mexico. Wow. I'm coming. I'm coming over. Yes, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Love to have you. So... On the on that note, and birds of South Texas, what is your favorite bird, and is it a South Texas bird? My favorite U.S. bird is greyhawk. Yes. Mm. Yeah, How come? They're here in South Texas, and they're in Arizona. Um, so if you look up a photo of a greyhawk, they are – so they're hawks, right? They're raptors. Um, so for that reason, they're like badass. They're just badass. Raptors are badass. Uh, but they're just so subtly beautiful too. This bird has really, really fine gray and white barring all throughout its whole mm. body. Um, and, and they're fascinating. There's a population here in South Texas and there's a population in Arizona. The Arizona population migrates 
it leaves in the wintertime. It leaves the United States and goes to Mexico. Our population here in South Texas stays put. Um, and so there's just a lot to be, there's a lot for us to learn still about them as well. Hmm. Hawks do have this terrible kind of beauty, right? It's the it's this softness, but also this horror. And we, we had a Cooper's hawk pulverize a mockingbird in the backyard a while back. And we have three children and they all had totally different reactions to it. You know, our oldest was like, cool. And our youngest was in tears. And our middle one wanted to know, like, you know, he was asking the the fork and knife question. Like, how is he getting his dinner in his belly? And it was it was like Nature Channel. We were eating dinner and then suddenly it was it was Nature Channel. But I was struck by just how beautiful it was. You know, the thing is blood is dripping down its beak, but also this terrible, powerful kind of beauty. And also the mockingbird had woken us up like five nights in a row. So I was I was okay with it. Like he needed a girlfriend or he needed to be someone's dinner. And either one was fine with me. Um, well, Heather, you've written about – I'm calling you the wrong name. We're going to redo that. Tiffany, you've written about how nature has helped you find hope and healing. Say a little bit about that. Where are you finding hope these days? I'm finding hope in connecting other people um, with birds. With birds, yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's actual research that has proven that spending 20 minutes in nature, um, you know, and this isn't, this isn't a fitness or an exercise question, even just sitting in nature for 20 minutes um, your cortisol or your stress hormone level uh, decreases. Your um, uh, <laughs> let me do that over. <laughs> so research has proven that spending 20 minutes in nature, and this isn't like a fitness thing. It's it's even just sitting for 20 minutes in nature reduces your cortisol or your stress hormone levels, and also reduces your blood pressure. And so there's actual mm. physiological benefits to just spending time in nature. Um, and, and I feel that, I absolutely feel that for me. Um, and it's great to be able to, to share that with so many other people and to teach them more about birds and about the natural world and have them hopefully continue to spend even more time in nature in the future. Mm. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for the work that you have done and the work that you are doing to protect those who are vulnerable vulnerable out there on the trail. And uh, congrats on the big year and congrats on not doing another big year. The Thing with Feathers is produced by me, Courtney Ellis. Many thanks to Del Belcher for the music to Todd Peterson for the name inspiration, and to Emily Dickinson for the beautiful poem and for being in the public domain. Until next time, my friends, keep looking up. Put a your soul. Yes, it does.